0: In this episode of Ayers for Architecture, Shati Chateaupadai of University of California Santa Barbara speaks about small spaces recasting the architecture of empire, which she published with Bloomsbury last year. Ayers for Architecture, a podcast about architecture, buildings, urban culture and space. Hello and welcome to another episode of airs for Architecture. I'm talking today to Professor Shati Shatapadai. Thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. And we're going to talk about your book, but perhaps before uh, your, your recent book, your new book, Small Spaces, Recasting the Architecture of Empire. But perhaps before we get into that, would you be so kind as to introduce yourself a little more accurately um, and fully?
1: Well, I'm very happy to uh, join this podcast. I'm like, looking forward to the conversation I um, am trained as an architect first before I became an architectural historian. So I practiced, uh, I finished my BR, I practiced and I did an MR. And then um, my faculty at the University of um, Arizona Tucson suggested I do a PhD. And I wasn't sure why I should do that because I was going to practice. But then one thing led to another and I ended up doing a PhD at Berkeley. And I have been at UC Santa Barbara um, up to, since my graduation uh, from uh, the PhD program there. And so I am a confirmed uh, Santa Barbarian, you can say. Okay. But I also, you know, grew up in Calcutta, I lived in Delhi. Um, I, the a number of times i visit London, people think I live in London, which is not true. Uh, so, um, you know, my work, um, and uh, thinking has been actually influenced by all of these locations
0: where I have lived, um, taught and worked. Wonderful. What's, um, so did you study in Delhi?
1: No, I did not study in Delhi. I worked in Delhi as an architect. Did you? And who did you work for? It was uh, Sipi Kukreja and Associates. It's a big firm. Uh, and um, I worked there for three years. And I also did actually something interesting, which was, uh, there was a journal, the first architectural professional journal, uh, architecture Plus Design, and um, I was the architectural consultant for that, which gave me um, sort of, a, I think, a fondness for architectural publishing that I had not um, encountered before, and that I followed up later, you know, by um, at present in the last I'm one of the co-editors of Platform, the online venue for um, discussions of architecture space, broadly speaking. Mm-hmm. And um, before that, I was the editor of the Journal of the Society of Architectural Historians. You know, the main disciplinary journal. Um, and I think those interests and what you do with publishing, and that's why I'm. Act- I was actually very keen to be um, uh, participate in this podcast, is because. Um, how we talk about architecture is uh, the mode is just as important as the content. So it's it's interests me of how um, architectural publishing and architectural discourse has changed over I can certainly recount 30 to 40 years. So I find that fascinating and there's a deep investment in it uh, to reach audiences mm. that normally we would not, you know, beyond our classrooms
0: beyond uh, people who read our books. That's so. uh, really interesting. I, I want to ask about your PhD, but I think that's a, what you've just been saying is a kind of really interesting into talking about your book, which is um, also about reaching beyond the canon, so to speak, of how we talk about the architecture of empire, the the, the process of empire building. And starting to, I suppose, flip it on its head in a little bit of a way. That's an inelegant way of putting it, but perhaps you could explain it a little better. I mean, I hope you, know, you um, wrote it. <laughs> right.
1: You know, since I in myself invoked you know thirty or forty years. You know, when I did my undergrad architecture. Um, paid very little attention to history, like which architecture student does, right? You know, architectural history is something that you you kind of have to sit through. But, you know, in our defense, at least I'm talking about me and my cohorts, you know, we were reading Bannister Fletcher and, you know, Ferguson. I mean, why would you be interested in that, right? There were no, Spiro Kostov's, you know, uh, World Survey was not out for us at at the time. It it came out just after that. So I encountered it in my MR. I said, oh, you can actually say, you know, tell my stories about um, the history of architecture. That's actually good to read. Um, I think I changed, uh, we did a lot of um, on-site documentation and trying to figure out how to tell these stories of buildings. One was uh, actually um, the school and then university complex, Shantiniketan that was founded by the poet Rabindranath Tagore. In, in Bengal, you know, and it's a rural area. It's, it's you know really beautiful buildings and so on and so forth. So when I did that work with my um, cohort um, in my undergrad, this is what I did my undergrad in Calcutta. Um, it was actually a great way of learning, but we didn't know how to do research really. We didn't know how to do architectural history. You know, in other words, we were kind of cobbling together a method. I think that was still very important in terms of. Learning the nitty gritty of how you go about doing um, architectural uh, investigation, how you learn to see a building, you learn to see a building quite differently. And we were all on our own. I think it changed my mind truly about architectural history after coming to Berkeley and um, getting introduced to the work of Delupton, um, who became my advisor. When... Oh, did he? Yeah.
0: Oh, so, wonderful. Oh, how how
1: well, wonderful. Yeah. So. Uh, I think that I was always interested in social issues uh, and um, architecture, you know, the social content of architecture. Um, but um, being comfortable looking at ordinary buildings and the wonderful stories you can tell about ordinary buildings is a lesson I think me and my cohort in the PhD program at Berkeley learned from Dell. And there were others, you know, Paul Roth, um, you know, there, there were, uh, lots of um you know people who could help you think through those you know i always say and i said in the introduction of my small spaces book i think the my fondness for small spaces and small things uh were honed in, at, you know during my phd work in uh, at berkeley by the faculty and also by colleagues who uh, we had wonderful conversations about um let's say um Uh, Sort of how goods were stacked in um, grocery stores, and uh, you know, we would talk of, you know, think of that that chunk of space. In other words, thinking about space not only in terms of it doesn't have to be a building, it doesn't even have to be an urban plan; it can be any space. So, my understanding of architecture is extremely generous. For me, it's all architecture. If it's space, it's architecture. So, for me, uh, and I write about this in the book. uh, medicine cabinet it has spatial qualities so that space that i can think of you you know you may not be able to inhabit that space you know a person cannot go inside but it is the stuff of that makes habitation possible right Mm -hmm. you carry it with you you know in other words portable goods can be very spatial right because you you know construct space around them
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, they can be the nuclei of you know space making or place making so i think those were so i in some ways, this book is a return to work I started thinking about at least 30 years ago. Uh, but you know, it was always in the margins of other projects, you know, the major research projects that this is the only project that, uh, you know, didn't get a grant. In other words, I never applied for a grant because I was just working on it like you know slowly. Um, and I think it's a kind of project which came together slowly as my thinking about architectural and space uh, changed um, and I would dare say became more sophisticated, uh, at least I learned to think uh, more creatively about how to introduce um, characters who are never given uh, importance or any significance in traditional architectural histories. And I, you know, we can cite many of those and it's not simply about even big buildings um, or you know historical narratives remain about great men greater battles and grand narratives and you know it has to be like you know the big thing that can capture your imagination you know all we can think of is we all know this as in architects and architectural historians you know Daniel Burnham saying what did he say Uh, I have it written down Make no little plans. They have no magic to stir men's blood and probably themselves will not be realized. Uh, uh, even if we bracket the stir men's blood, okay, the masculinist, you know, prerogative of architectural history and planning. That is also, he is voicing imperialist ambition. You know, only recently have we learned to even look at that as imperial ambition. Uh-huh. Stuff of modern architectural planning. You know, how were we so blind that you know? It's only recently we are looking at that. So I'm interested in you know you know as an architect I was re- very much raised in a, within a modern modernist ethos um, to be very plain. It was really a Baja's ethos. Okay, that's our you know, design training. Uh, to work through that, uh, to work um, beyond it, took some thinking and training. Why have we not? Uh, learned to see or read the imperialist ambitions of most of architecture most mm-hmm. of certain modern architecture uh, why has it been so difficult and I think um, you know it's um, what I call the aura of bigness has never left architectural imagination that's what he was talking about like you mm-hmm. know, think big you know small things don't matter right I say Think small. That's what really matters.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and the aura of bigness has actually bled into all kinds of historical imagination. So he was not an exception by any means. It was not simply that he was a product of his time. Um, Burnham was also, you know, in some way you could say, uh, inherited, uh, you know, way of thinking about history and architecture, but also has inher- had inherited. Thinking uh, way about uh, space that had a long remit, you know, long 20th century and 21st century remit. But what really also interests me, I think, is that that aura of bigness has also bled into the historical imagination per se. In other words, think of how we, you know, our our current crisis—it's a crisis of scale and scalar imagination. So you know, the threat caused by the Anthropocene. Uh, you know, we have to think about big histories, big time, you know, and then global histories. How do you think about global histories? I call these scalar anxieties, and they are all sort of pervaded by this aura of bigness, it's like a geological and planetary sublime. And so, my work is, you know, this book is very much not just in conversation, but refutation. Of that mode of thinking, the privileging of bigness as a desideratum, as um, something one must do, uh, like you know the, because I think what has been elided in thinking about big histories like planetary histories, as seen, is that so much of imperialist thinking has gone into that mode of thought, uh, and we have not been able to really. Kind of separate them out, like why why do big histories of empire and you know histories of Anthropocene um, have so much in terms of privileging of the big? I think that um, if if I have to say you know why is this book important now, it is because I think we have hit a crisis in scalar imagination and really need. To think carefully about what we are privileging, who we are privileging, who gets to create value in scale. Um, where, where, how do we privilege scale? Which scale do we privilege? Um, in other words, new universals have been brought in without much attention to how they connect to and relate to imperialist histories. So, my, you know, the work is on empire, and I mostly British Empire. But I'm also talking about, very much talking about, um, what I call imperialist thinking, which pervades modern architecture. You can go to the 19th century, go to the 20th century, and we can talk about more about, you know, I love talking about service spaces like you, but but, you know, again, there are some obvious ways of thinking about in modern architecture in terms of service spaces. Why are service spaces all this hidden? Why are they at the back? Why did Louis Kahn, of all people, and I'm a great fan of Kahn, make a distinction between servant spaces and um, servant spaces. And, you know, we at that time have since since that pretty awful distinction in terms of, you know, thinking of this is actually, you know, spaces of then slate and master spaces. That's what we're talking about. That kind of thinking is absolutely, you know, embedded and in, ingrained in architectural thinking and mm. you know and that i would saying like doesn't matter which part of the world you're talking about because that that's our habit of imagining architecture and space
2: mm.
0: I think that's a really interesting I, I love this phrase of scale our anxieties of the contemporary period and I do think you've answered a lot of the kind of thoughts I'd had about yeah the the the, the timeliness of the book the, the reason for this book now and it, and it struck me when I when I came across it um that there was some this idea of smallness is very as you say it's very required but this idea of abstraction and alienation and abstraction being inherent to the modernist condition and this scale issue around particularly the way you you set out at the beginning of the book in the introduction you set, set out talking about um the the kind of the, the the imperial project through its maps and plans you know these kind of and it was really strange, actually, because yeah, you talk about one particular map, and I can't remember its name now. Um, at the very beginning, um, so this is Parkinson's map. Yeah, uh, the federal. Yeah, and I had actually used uh, Federation, an, yeah. yeah, I'd used an image of it at the beginning of a, a lecture about mapping that I gave at lunch yesterday, just just to talk about the idea of maps communicating narratives um, mm-hmm. rather than facts and um, or necessarily facts, but. Um, so, I really like this. I, I, so I'm kind of interested in this idea of the modernist project working at this kind of crazy scale. like like the way we talk about sustainability and environmentalism at the scale of the global. and it kind of like, what the hell does that mean? Like what are we to do with this? what Where can we put this Definitely. and mm-hmm. And at the same time, Empire is presented in this kind of extremely strange way of this kind of grand, romantic, um opportunistic um righteous moral campaign that doesn't really have any meaning at the level at which it is experienced and your book i mean is that is that a fair is that a fair statement is that a fair comment and your book is seeking to kind of find the actual complexity within that avatar of a, of an image
1: yeah, I know you're absolutely right. I and mean, the thing is that, you know, those maps, this is, you know, uh, Parkinson's map in uh, this Imperial Federation map. Yeah. It's very interesting, that map, because it has all the, the margins are interesting. You know, the visual ethnography of the margins are interesting. There were different versions of those, that map. Um, but what interested me in that, and it's used so frequently, it's very well known, you know, mm. uh, you know uh, cartographic image. Is that it shows all the communication lines, it shows where you feel, it shows telegraph lines, railway lines, etc., and the different shades of pink, red, it's about more developed, less developed, it's not developable, you know, like you can't develop that way. So, so and but it presents empire in such a coherent form, as if it's already a fact. You know, so uh what I'm refuting is the geographic fact of empire you know, that it is, it can be neatly mapped, you know, you what know, well, two-fifths of the planet is, the empire, etc. No, no, it was fragile. It was incoherent, okay? Empire was terribly incoherent. Okay? So these rhetorical um, means of making empire look like one project, one thing that, you know, can, you know, in Conrad's, you know, language, one can you know bow down to you know think like, you know, like in other words you, you, you can um you, you can sort of pay um obeisance to you can um find your little foot in it i think it's not just you know a version of 19th and 20th century imperialism it's ma- much more um uh, uh, i would say uh, problematic and you know Injurious. It, 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 let me rephrase that. Um, it's much more problematic and insidious, okay, than um, just oh, if it was just re- re- rhetorical, if it's just nineteenth century, we could have believed it, you know, in the past. Like, okay, fine, it's racialized, you know, it's it's a particular, you know, kind of progressive of empire. But what concerns me is that that way of thinking about connections, about trade, about territory. Has not left us. No. As, you know, it has um, over the years gained new momentum, if you will. Every twenty years, we see a resurgence. We are seeing a resurgence now. I mean, look at around the world. It's what's happening. You know, it's it's imperial ambitions being you know unfold you know unfolding imperial ambitions, um, and it's that's what interests me is to question that geographical certainty mm. that maps such as those offered post
0: mm. and 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 to question and so the means by which you question it is is to go into these small spaces and you started off talking about medicine cabinet this is the scale that we're talking about here isn't it or are we or what is it from that all the way up to the building like what is a i guess yeah what is a small space
1: It's a very pertinent question in terms of the book, and I make a distinction between size and scale. So, you know, I look at the medicine cabinet, but, you know, I'm looking at other spaces, many of the storage spaces, okay? And the term in um, both South Asia and East Asia was godown, uh, these large warehouses. And the godowns could actually could be fairly small, you know, it could be an eight by 10 room, or it could be really large spaces. I mean, like, uh, the tea and opium gardens in Calcutta were they're like the size of a you know city block. You know that that that's how large. It is. In other words, it's not the small spaces I'm talking about are not always dimensionally small. Some of them are. The medicine cabinet is right. The medicine box of medicine. I talk about a particularly box of homeopathic medicine. But some of the spaces are absolutely dimensionally small. You know, like the cook rooms I talk about. You know, they're not kitchens. They're cook rooms because the cook resides over the. Preparational meal and it's separate from the house. Um, I talk about these strange spaces which I had never encountered before myself, called the bottle khan. I found it in the was Like, what does that even mean? It turns out to be a you know a storage space, and but it has a you know a storied you know sort of, uh, uh, history. It's like it's very interesting um, by itself. But I make a s- distinction between size dimension because I'm talking about spaces, objects of various uh, dimensions, and scale. Scale is, of course, a relational issue. But, you know, let's think about this. You know, uh, every architecture student is taught how to think about scale, right? Mm -hmm. Because you have to think about proportionality, about the real thing in the world, the building, and how it's represented, let's say, in in a plan, right? You scale down, right? you're trying to retain some proportionality. We do scale models, right? And you're scaling down. And we know, I mean, apart from all the images we can think of, you know, Likabuzzi's hand on the, you know, the model, you know, the the sort of iconic modernist moment, right? Um, Is that in scaling up and down, you do the, the trick of erasure. In other words, you erase content, you erase people. And uh, whenever you're moving from one scale to another, when it's not done conscientiously, carefully, you know, sort of with a great deal of introspection, we erase entire histories. That is what I'm bringing into question here, is that this is what I call the scalar imagination. And... um, When we move from one scale to another, something happens, something interesting happens, and we need to pay attention to what happens. Um, Let's think about this, okay? Uh, Let's say, you know, um, the way we are having this conversation, you're in your own room, I'm in my own room, and we're having this conversation. So we are relating across vast space, but we are in our micro spaces, in our you know, room spaces. So how do we connect these to history? So if you think about, you know, all the um, sort of the uh, digital um, links that, you know, the, the massive scale, right? But they are actually very, um, think of the digital and the, um, the communi- you know, communication networks that connect us. And how did they sit? Um, in relation to the spaces, the physical spaces which we're inhabiting, as opposed to the digital space. There is something that kicks in, you know, in terms of what I call alterity, the otherness kicks in. And, you know, I can never really get to know the space you're sitting in, and you will never get to see. In other words, there is a barrier, right? And how do we think of this barrier? God knows, for you know, two years of COVID, we had lots of time to think about what those barriers are, right? But those barriers are real. Mm-hmm. So my goal in this book is to, when I move scale, let's say, uh, move from one small space or an aggregate of spaces and then a different space, you know, which is actually dimensionally very large. What am I doing? What operations am I doing? Uh, what am I subjecting the narrative to? In other words, what am I privileging in making certain connections in jumping scale mm. uh, or uh, you know, reducing the scalar relation, diminishing it? What mm. am I doing? Um, I think that's something in terms of, and I just talking about architectural history, we need to be extremely attentive to because we have not been attentive to that. We have taken scale as a kind of a given. We have never questioned the, you know, our scalar existence, yeah. right? our scalar assumptions. And I, that's, I think it's, and it's very, you know, um, very fundamental to architecture. You know, we we think through scale, but we are never conscientious about it. Yeah. That's, that, that's the problem that I have um, learned to recognize.
0: Yeah, I, I really understand. Yeah, I understand that a lot. I mean, we're, we're very casual with it, aren't we? And, and, it, and there's a lot of assumptions in it. Why why is i suppose one might have approached talking about this issue through a number of things but you've approached it because that's a, a very fascinating idea and it could be it could be just as equally applied as a concept to the problem around creating um socially sustainable or economically sustainable homes this issue around scale like we you know why why are urban settlements so barren? you build urban settlements so barren because they're drawn at the scale which privileges a certain kind of organization of space and and no one's ever moving in closer because you don't need to because you can get planning permission and the contractors just chuck the stuff out anyway, so it doesn't really make any difference. So we could apply it there, but you've applied it specifically to try, sort of unpacking the uh, the 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 making of the imperial world. Mm-hmm. What Does it why that world, and I mean, mm. setting aside perhaps uh, the, that, that being a rather asinine question, but what does it, I suppose, teach us most about that world? What does this kind of refocusing on the minutiae of that world of, of scale teach us in this context? I think,
1: um, the again, you know, let me um make sure I'm clear about this in some instances, I'm thinking about the minutiae, you know, and you could in some instances, I am writing micro-histories, you know, specific histories of people in one space Mm -hmm. trying to give you know, sort of meaning you know, significance to one character one Mm -hmm. space. Other times I'm not. My book is not a micro-history. So, in other words, um, I am trying to think about why certain connections are privileged. Let me give you um, an example because I um, drew inspiration from that work. Elizabeth Crumley, um, American historian, artist historian, she wrote a very good book called The Food Access. And she was looking at uh, Americans from colonial houses to you know 20th century houses about the space of food production, you know, food production, food consumption, And she made a very convincing argument that uh, that axis, the uh, axis of production and consumption, is the central axis of the American home. It was, you know, um, I don't think uh, she changed anybody's mind, despite an exceptionally good research, that it is the you know, central spine, because you always think about, well, no, you know, it's a parlor, it's the main, you know, main spaces. I mean, you're already thinking about the male spaces as most important, not the ones which are, you know, um, space of women and servants and then enslaved, because that cannot be the central axis, because then what happens to the male prerogative of the, of the domestic space and so on and so forth. Um, so, if we have to make connections between spaces, okay, just just let's think about the house, okay? How do we tell that story? In other words, should we privilege the main spaces or the back spaces, you know, the spaces of um, where actual labor happens? So my strategy in this book is to, um, what I call de-link some of those assumed connections. Oh, we have to, you know, Start thinking about a house. How he entered the house, and then you have the main space, you know, the living room or the parlor or whatever. I don't go there. I will start at the most um, unprivileged space. Let's talk about the outhouse, okay? An outhouse meant different things. It could mean actually the toilet, or it could mean servants' quarters and service spaces. Um, What happens if we start there to think about the house and not, you know, in other words, the vantage is important. Where you start rather than the main space, if you start in one of the marginalized spaces. But then what do you connect it with? So in one instance, then I'm looking at this um, space that was called cook room that I already mentioned. It was located outside, this is an Anglo-Indian colonial houses. It would be located outside the main house because it had to be farthest away from polite spaces, you know, all the smoke and the smell, etc. You could not admit that in the main house, and this is a pattern also in colonial houses elsewhere. And um, I actually link that space, that space of labor, with um, the food crisis of the 1876-78 famine called the Madras famine, and how. Once you bring those two together, you find connections that you would have never imagined before. You know, there are histories of the Madras family. Well, there are no histories of the cook room, but, you know, you could say, well, you know, why bother, right? And it's a small space, you know. What what really important happened there? For me, if you want to really understand what is the politics of food in a colonial regime under colonialism, what I call the culinary... uh, you know, um, culinary um, racism of empire, you would need to connect these spaces and you'll see different figures, different stories emerge. I think that's uh, one of my goals. In other words, you could tell, I think it, there's great value in uh, writing micro histories and focusing on that small space in and by itself. Um, you know, uh, but there is also some remit in connecting disparate scales mm. and and then see
0: what emerges in terms of narrative connections. I mean, what did you find? I mean, that sounds absolutely fascinating. What did you find? I mean, or was there, fa- did you come to some conclusions about this relationship between the cookroom, which I'm guessing is a space that's largely overseen by The woman of the house, the colonial house mistress, um, and and these broader geopolitical crises, because I think that, yeah, because when we look at famines, we try and work out the largest scale thing that must be causing it, which is really useful because it means we don't have to take any responsibility at all for it, which is fantastic. That's just what we want. but whereas, actually, if you implicate the everyday practices of homemaking, for example, or the the work of the mistress of the home, in the production of the crisis, then well, everybody's implicated. Everybody's guilty, aren't they? And that's that's I, I suppose one of the things it does is it troubles our historical imagination. It creates a sort of dis ease within that, um, which is yeah, which is good. Which is good. Which is as you say, it's it's about time.
1: So, uh, you know, the cook room, interestingly, because it was outside the house, mm-hmm. was not within direct, you know, um, control of the mistress of the house, you know, the European woman, which caused, um, you know, deep anxiety. So there was um, an effort to bring it within the house or mm-hmm. close to the house. It cannot be within because, you know, these are servant spaces, you know, the, you know what they do, you know, there's... It's completely, the relations are completely, you know, and deeply racialized and so on and so forth. Uh, they're dirty spaces. So I actually have a section on dirt. You know, what does dirt mean in this case, right? What, what is this anxiety about dirt? Um, but so there's, I was looking at actually, um, talk of sort of discoveries in the archive. I was looking at this one um, recipe book. It's, a, it, it's somewhere between, a, you know, a cookbook and a housekeeping guide um, written by a um, uh, colonel in the Madras army, retired colonel. And um, it is, it, it, you know, all these really fancy cooking that he expects the servants to do. And he's sh- telling the reader how they should be trained to do it and so on and so forth. And he should abandon all those Indian foods because, you know, they're barbaric, etc. I mean, you can read the text now and you can get actually really amused like, oh, well, that's so kind of blatantly racialized, etc. Then I realized something, you know, I've I've been looking at this for a long time and I didn't notice it, that it was actually published during the Madras famine and he's in Madras. So that let me think about what does it mean to produce a book like that, that, which is asking for anywhere between, you know, the least of six, you know, and for, you know, uh, respectable dinners, 12 course meals um, to be produced at that time. What does it mean? Really? Ah. Okay. What is, what are we talking about? So I link it to labor, the right to command labor mm. is what is at the sort of core of this. And uh, it's a, it's a, my argument is much more detailed. But I think if you think about what kind of labor he expects the servants to perform, and where they would perform it, it was about the command over labor. Command over food is about the command over labor. So there's a
0: pres- there's there's a precision about what, how you're talking. Sorry for interrupting, but there's a precision about how you're talking about this, which I think is really fascinating. Um, it's sort of becoming uh, the 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 detail at which you're describing even these smaller situations that, that, that askew the kind of grand narrative is small in itself. It's, as you say, it's a cookbook as a source that can actually unpack a whole historical relationship between the colonizer and the colonized, the slave and the master, um, relationships to, yeah, as you say, control of labor, which I think is a really fascinating, really fascinating idea, um. I was just wondering about, because you also talked about, in the book, you talk about the the and the need, for example, in these colonial houses for servants. And there's a kind of dual need here. There's the need to be seen to be someone who can have servants. So there's Mm -hmm. the kind of, and and you mentioned one particular family where they actually basically go bankrupt because they have to have the servants to seem like the kind of people that have sermons. But they can't actually afford them. But then there's this other peculiar thing, which is that it's so hot
2: mm-hmm.
0: for the for the, the colonisers that they feel that they need. What was it? What was the number? Something like every room needs punkers, and you need something like punkawala. six. Yeah. yeah, and you need a punker wallow for every room, basically. And yeah. Yeah. so you've got a, so you've got a minimum staff of like twelve people.
1: Yeah, you know. Um, so right, and that's for a. Um, you know, junior personnel in the army. Okay, huh. think about it. Uh, so when you went up the ladder, and uh, you went up to the viceroy, uh, you would have more than 300. So okay. Um, but the fact that ordinary people, ordinary personnel, you know, civil and military had so many servants. Uh, and, you know, it's not like it has not been mentioned in different, you know, accounts of empire. You know, what about we if we actually take a look at what does it mean in terms of labor? Where do they labor? I mean, it's just I'm just asking, like where where does the labor happen? Mm. And through the figure of the Pankawala, for example, in other words, the and these are all men men who actually fan the um, inhabitants, European inhabitants of these houses, but they don't sit in that space. Mm. This is a space adjacent, and the fan which is hanging from the ceiling is, you know, suspended from the ceiling is connected through a wire cord through a hole in the wall. And this person is sitting in a space, sort of, in other words, you don't want to see the guy, but you want to be fanned by the guy. Right. And so what, what does it mean? And so I, I, you know, take apart what does it mean in terms of labor, laboring space? And something that's fascinating in terms of comfort. So this is about, you know, oh, India is so hot, right? You always need to be, you know, the the comfort of the European body, of course, at the expense of the native body, but that is always assumed, right? But here, what interested me is that a certain um, mode of abstraction, again, that I see um, unfolding um, between the early 19th century and late 19th century, when not only, you know, The sort of what we would say middle class men and women are expect to be fanned, okay, which mind you didn't pretty much exist in the late 18th century. Somebody had to stand next to you to fan you, okay. So, this new uh, fangled thing about hanging uh, uh, fans from the ceiling, by the mid 19th century, we see it in barracks. And now they have to think about how to, they're thinking about the ordinary soldiers, the Waltons, that you, that who need to be fanned, um, you know, if necessary, 24 hours um, to keep them comfortable. So you think of spaces of the barracks, and these are very large spaces. So they're thinking of a train of these fans. So they're may, trying to make these calculations of how many uh, of these Pankawalas would you need to fan these men who are sleeping like, and they, it's, we're getting into the realm of standardization. We're getting the realm of calc- calculating efficiency and, you know, mechanical efficiency, efficiency of the laboring bodies, and the creation of what I call the pankhakuli. The, the fact that these were um, seasonal labor um, and they were a, a different class of labor emerges because of this perceived need of the European body. And again, my question is: Where do these people come from? Where do they actually labor? Mm. Uh, why this need suddenly, which wasn't there even early in the early nineteenth century? How does this need emerge? And this I related to the ability and uh, to demand labor, mm. whether it's for bodily comfort, whether it's for food. Um, so. That's how I relate like what happens in the famine camps, what happens to labor. They have to labor if they are going to get food. Mm-hmm. In other words, without labor, nobody will be given any um any aid. Mm-hmm. So what is that figure of labor and how does the figure of labor work in all these spaces? So if we kind of stack these against each other, you know, the cookroom, the veranda in mm-hmm. which the kawala labors, the famine camp. And then you know the unspoken villages from which these you know um, famished people were coming, uh, or they were forced to leave their villages because mm-hmm. they wouldn't be given aid there. They had to come to the camps to get aid, or come to work at infra- infrastructural projects and in canal and railways to get food. What does it mean once we stack these next to each other? See mm-hmm. the connections what kind of sort of enterprise do we see empire to be? Mm-hmm. So that's where I'm going. And I and I, I think part of my interest, you know, I work on colonialism. So, you know, that, so that's the archive, but that's not purely um, that simple. In other words, it's not um, simply that I happen to work on the colonial archives that's where I'm looking at empire. but well, I think these ideas about um Command labor, you know how one commands labor. Who gets to command labor? Where the spaces of labor are profoundly um, applicable, and are uh, you find it every realm of what we would say modern and contemporary architecture? They've not gone anywhere.
0: It's not gone and anywhere. That, yeah, so. and it's really it is it's a really interesting one. And I'm I'm slowly getting my head around. This idea as well. I, I want I wanted to ask about Dell Upton. I wanted to go back to Dell Upton because obviously Dell Upton's a vernacularist, folklorist, you know, wonderful scholar in so many ways. But there's this idea in much of the literature around the vernacular, from Amos Rapaport and Henry Glassie and um, Paul Oliver and um, Elizabeth Carter Cromley and, and people like that 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 there is a, an emergence from the context, but from the socio-cultural with a heavy emphasis on the social um, behind architectural form. And it's not, um, uh, who was it? Thomas Hubcock talked about the kind of climate driven idea about architecture as being uh, essentially the same argument as saying, you know, humans make buildings like birds make nests. It's like, it's, it's kind of deeply problematic actually when you stand back from it. So Upton and 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 that 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 moment that social moment in architecture promotes a much more holistic, much more rooted, much more sensitive, much more ethnographic kind of approach. Do you see in the emergence of the architecture of of the colonial period, say for example in Bengal or in 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 India, do you see a correlational? Reality. Is this, so for example, the sudden desire for everybody to have a punkawala? Is this, to go back to your scale jumping, to use um, uh, um, uh, Arjuna Padurai, is this the top telling people you need to have better ventilation because it's going to be, you know, it's like, you know, being told how to be a good coloniser? Or is there some kind of emergence from the bottom, a kind of awareness that then dis- that, that, that disseminates across? And more, is there learning from the context itself? Is there in the plans of the buildings and the forms of the buildings and the way that they operate in the organisation of the spaces, some kind of reciprocity between indigenous forms, indigenous practices and knowledges? Or is there, you know, is it is it in any way a kind of mutual enterprise if not a, if not in a good way in a perhaps in a colonial way like i'm nicking your ideas like uh like foucault talks about uh um uh the french uh going into north africa and and sort of documenting things and um, aestheticizing things and nicking them i did did you find any of that
1: oh you know if you're looking at the colonial archive you'll always find that okay um that doesn't interest me that much okay because um there is no colonial architecture which is not partly indigenous, okay? It has to be, okay? Because mm-hmm. the labor, the materials, the construction techniques. I mean, there's an entire history of that. And I do talk about some of that aspect, there, you know, because they're relevant to the spaces that I am discussing. But I think, let me pick up on one thing you mentioned. You know, is something, you know, I'm actually intellectually raised by Americanists, you know, James Deeds, De Lofton, um, and I... Uh, studied actually American colonial architecture before I uh, studied um, in, in a British Empire elsewhere. And there are correlations. Their ideas are moving from one place to another. So you have pankhas in the colonial south. Um, Jefferson was thinking about how to um, get rid of um, the fan, ba- you know, the person in the slave uh, banning him or his guests and how to replace it with a mechanical system. Okay, a proper fan, as we would, you know, think mm-hmm. about. So, in other words, he's thinking about labor, how he can uh, do certain economies in terms of enslaved labor. Uh, he's doing calculations, and he's coming up with, you know, new, um, a new contraception, like a like new thing, a you know, mechanical thing that would replace that. That's where I think I, I clearly see the kind of abstraction that is happening, how labor is being thought of, uh, how conceptions of labor are changing, and yes, the idea for punkar that you know he's dealing with you know, what was used in the colonial South comes from uh, South Asia actually. Okay. So um, that mode. So in other words, practices travel across the world, and it's not just you know what you know Tony King talked about the bungalow just form and you know the idea moving if not the form um it it is also i think um interesting to think about not just um appropriation of materials uh, and th- that's the really important and techniques it's about um how do you perceive and appropriate um uh, the labor and what that labor means. In other words, um, were Indian elites also doing uh, similar things? After a point, yes. Okay, uh, But in, even in the early 19th century, unless you were super rich, you did not expect to be fanned all the time. It just didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And people seem to have survived. Okay, um, So it's not that... You know, there were Indian practices and here Europeans encountered them and they became something else. Of course, they became something else. Okay. I'm interested in in whose terms? What were the costs? And what did it mean in terms of emergent forms of labor, emergent spaces of labor? That's what interests me. Okay? So for Thomas Jefferson, he's trying to get rid of this body of the enslaved in the the formal spaces. So he doesn't have to see him, his guests don't have to see him. So it can be sort of behind uh, in in a space where um, uh, the person need not be seen or it can be replaced by mechanical equipment. Uh, Similarly, what is being made important and visible, and what needs to remain invisible for certain social processes, economic processes to flourish. So the politics of invisibility, the politics of giving value to certain kinds of work and not others, certain kinds of bodies and not others, that is of interest to me. And that's what the book is really about. So it's not that, you know, I think we know that anything colonial means, There is a lion's share of the indigenous in it in every form you can think of. So, that I accept that I know that that's that's a you know an assumption with which I go into the project because I've done other work on colonial architecture and planning. Um, But I think I'm asking a different set of questions in this book Mm -hmm. than I've looked at servants, um, but I'm. By foregrounding problem of scale hmm. and scale alterity, the otherness that emerges when we move from one scale to another, when we think about um, small scale, you know, small spaces. In other words, there is no uh, obvious way of saying, "Oh, I'm going to just look at a cookroom." How do you go and look at a cookroom? Like, you know, these are architecturally undistinguished spaces. Hmm. Where do you begin? Like what are you going to what are you going to start with, right? You're going to write a history of a closet, okay? How are you going to how are you going to go about doing it? Like, right? what's your method? What's your you know what's your approach? So I made labor the entree into these spaces. and thinking about well, um, how is work shaped in these spaces? How does how is the space shaped by the work and vice versa? And that allows me to, what I know, connect what very well could be said disparate spaces, you know, uh, spaces of the camp. It could be um, the, you know, the military camp. It could be a famine camp. It could be the cook room. It could be the veranda. Um, it could be portable spaces. Okay. How are they connected? So if we think, you know, we always think of empire as a set of connections. Well, which connections? I think the real story lies and resides in where we see the connections, what connections we make, because I think we cannot get rid of the responsibility. We, as na- you know, historians, make the connection. There are no obvious connections. Mm-hmm. We are constructing those connections. We are privileging certain narratives. So in this book, I privilege certain narratives um, by... Um, focusing on what I call small spaces. And small spaces, you know, smallness here relates to position, location, visibility, durability, you know, um, you know, duration, a lot of different things. Okay, So in other words, um, looking at process of marginalization, what does it mean to make something small? Like I said, you know, many of these spaces are not small at all. You know, they are, you know, it, both in aggregate or by themselves, quite large. In other words, it's not that we are already talking about you know clauses and microspaces. it's not that simple,
0: not that writing about clauses it's simple. It's an interesting approach also to, to history because it makes it vigorous for the pre it's make it makes it dynamic and it makes it broadly applicable to contemporary conditions as well. We, what you, you can you can take this approach to any number of contexts in any number of periods. I' I've been, I've been fascinated by what I what I've found to be the total lack of recognition of, and, and this might sound controversial. I don't think it is very controversial, the to- total lack of consideration of the effects of decolonization on the colonizer, particularly on its working class and underprivileged communities. You go around Britain and you go to the poor places which used to produce all the soldiers for the empire—Glasgow's and Liverpool's—and and they're they're very poor and they suffer from profound um, long-term pathologies. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm not saying you know, uh, but you know, pity them. I mean, you know, we're talking here about the grandchildren of men who've who served in the military, mm-hmm. and and their communities have been. Sort of in a way, they are also subject to that colonial yeah. mentality, which took their bodies and made them fight and die uh, or fight and survive, and then when they didn't want them, get yeah. rid. And so it's a, it's a very it's a very useful, I think where whereas is, where is the, the heroic history tends to pickle things in aspic and place them in the past where they stay sort of like a butterfly instead what you you seem to be doing is generating a technique for doing history that is constantly in the present because it's constantly a device by which we can comprehend our condition our present condition
1: yeah you know um it's actually your point is absolutely you know correct in terms of the impact um on the so-called colonizer mm-hmm uh, you know, like, uh, there. when I write about European soldiers and the uh, deep elite European anxiety about their drinking habits, and a few scholars have written about that, and it fascinates me. You know, the, what I say, the prodigious drinking that happened in bungalows and elite establishments, there's no anxiety about that, hardly any anxiety about that. But why is it that, you know, there's so much anxiety about European soldiers and subalterns, Drinking, you know, there are caricatures, there are like, you know, reams of writing. Uh, so w- what's going on? So my understanding is that, and obviously coming from a spatial point of view, it's not that they're drinking, it's where they're drinking, with whom they're drinking. Because they are much more prone to cross racial boundaries, mm-hmm. um, ethnic boundaries, uh, religious boundaries, and makes them very dangerous. So that's you know that's a real fear of um, um, contamination, you know, of productive contamination. There. So it's it's very evident in the narratives of, of how you think about you know rationing and controlling.
2: Um,
0: to 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 control the possibilities of encounter and therefore the possibilities, I suppose, of fellow feeling developing, yes. which would <laughs> undercut the entire imperial project.
1: It would, yeah, you know, it's a uh, it, it would, and you know, where would the soldiers go to find their liquor to the bazaar? Yeah, okay? you know, where would they socialize with? Well, you know, heck, Indian women, okay, and, and of course, then of course, we know what will happen, God forbid, you know, the world will fall apart, right? Uh, well, yes, the imperial Imper- enterprise will uh, be deeply shaken, okay. Um, because I mean, they, they're talk- not
0: wrong in that. They're
1: not wrong in no, that. No, they're absolutely not wrong. in that. <laughs> Absolutely not. So, uh, yeah. So it's a, it's a, uh, it's the, the. This is what I call the insidiousness. So when I look at trade, you know, I'm looking at alcohol and food, you know, mm. canned and bottled provisions. Um. So I wanted to see why are they so both privileged and then why is there so much anxiety about this okay what is so important is it the expense no it's not expense it's use who controls them their signification like wow okay i did not think you know um can uh, you know an item of canned food was that important clearly it was okay so so those are i would actually say even for me were discoveries like Really, it, this, it, this is that serious? Then I have to construct. Why is it that serious? Uh, how do I, you know, relate it to trade histories of empire and this, you know, great works on trade histories of empire? And nobody connects it to what one could say microdynamism of power or these different scales. Okay, so what happens when it? I think you find uh, you make room for the stories of the subalterns, the sailors, the Indian servants and European women and Indian women in there, okay? So, and are they not connected to the elite men or uh, women? Of course they are. No, they're they're not separate entities. But the question is what you privilege. I do not begin with the famous men. Um, I do not, um, you know, that's not my entry point. I don't begin with the um, famous spaces. They're invoked, but they're not central to my rumination about space and empire.
0: That's a great point to finish on. Thank you, Shati, so much.
1: Thank you so much. This was a privilege and I um, look forward to further conversations.
0: Hagor said, I slept and dreamt that life was joy. I awoke and saw that life was service. I acted and behold, service was joy. Well, so was that conversation and so is the book. Thanks to Shatty for taking the time to speak with me and to Bloomsbury for the wonderful book. Links to it and to Shatty's professional profile are in the podcast description as ever. Thanks for listening.